are going to dive into a, a new series this morning. Uh, I, I do love this time of year. I love fall. Fall, while on the one hand is, you know, the death of things, leaves start falling off trees and stuff like that. But on the other hand, it's really the beginning of so many things. You have a school season that's just begun. Uh, you have ministry and churches really begin to, to uh, ramp up in the fall. So it's actually, in a sense, a, a time of new starts, a time of beginning. It's also a time we think about growth as students move from the past year into a new year. Uh, we think about change. Um, you know, it's interesting to me that probably the number one resource that God uses to affect growth in our lives is people. That is almost always the case. Uh, so it's a good time to be asking here in the fall, am I connected with the right people? Am I in relationships with the people who challenge me to grow spiritually, emotionally, and so on? Uh, because understand, God really does want you and me to grow. He wants us to be in relationships that call out the very best in us and enable us then to turn around and impact and affect and bless others just as they impact and affect and bless us. It's just the nature of this community that Jesus has created. Now, all this actually leads to a bit of a problem. And the problem is that in many communities that we are familiar with, that we are a part of throughout our daily routines, a lot of those communities are very exclusive. Um, many communities that I might want to be a part of may not want me to be in their community, you know, same for you. Many communities only accept the cream of the crop, the brightest of the bright, the blue chippers, if you will. I remember when Holly and I lived in Boca Raton, Florida, that was where we lived before we came here 30 years ago to plant this church. But most of the communities in Boca Raton, Florida were gated communities. You've seen gated communities. Maybe you live in a gated community. Uh, but gated communities have these, these uh, barriers that come down. They usually have a little guardhouse with a guard in there, just making sure that if you haven't purchased a home in here, if you aren't paying the dues so that you can use the clubhouse and the golf course and all the various amenities, then you're not really welcome inside the gated community. Um, Actually, we experience this too in different, other, uh, in different institutions. Uh, private schools a lot of times are a little bit like this. You know, you have to pay the price to attend a private school. It can be kind of exclusive. Country clubs, definitely like this. You've got to pay the fees in order to enjoy the amenities of the country club. Some even workplaces are somewhat exclusive. When I uh, think back to the school situation, this is so many years ago, when I was in high school, there were uh, kind of cool kids. There were medium cool kids, and then there were the not-so-cool kids, you know, and kind of everything in between. And you learned to sit in the cafeteria uh, at lunchtime in your sort of appropriate area. If you were a medium cool kid, you did not go sit where the really cool kids were. If you were a not cool kid at all, you didn't go sit where the medium cool kids were and so on. And everybody kind of knew their pecking order in all of this. Uh, Holly in high school was a very popular kid. She was a cheerleader. Everybody liked her, full of energy and so on. Holly's my wife. Um, and, uh, and yet she married me. I, I, I would best was in the medium cool category. Um, again, she's very generous for marrying me. Um, however, she went to a very small high school. My high school graduated about 400 seniors. I think the years graduate 20. So you see the bar is really low. I mean, just, just saying, just trying to be fair here. The coolness bar of her school was way lower than the coolness bar of mine. But anyway, we're starting into a series, and it's all about community. It's about belonging. It's about life change, and it's, uh, we're going to title it Life Together. We're going to be in this for the next few weeks. And we're going to spend some time looking at the community that Jesus 
created and calls us into, each and every one of us. And it's a pretty remarkable community, frankly. It's a community that generation after generation after generation, when and where it's healthy, that's the caveat here, when and where it's healthy, it continues to impact the world in some rather remarkable ways. It always has, and it still does. And it kind of makes you wonder why. Why does the church, why do people doing life together, following Jesus, why can that community have such an impact? Uh, is it because the, the members are all cream of the crop, you know, the best of the best, uh, the brightest of the bright, the blue chippers, the really cool people all sitting in the really cool area? Uh, there's this little book. We have it out available in the lobby, actually. It's by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's called Life Together. It is an excellent little book. It's one of the most profound books on the subject of spiritual community that I've ever read. I'm now just finishing it again for the third time. I got so much more out of it this time. I remember reading it back in seminary decades ago and thinking, wow, that's a really good book. I didn't understand it, but it's a really good book, I'm sure. It's very dense. It's very thoughtful. And so it's not easy to read. You have to kind of translate it, in fact, for our day, because it was written to guys going to seminary together in an underground uh, Nazi um, Germany. And so you can imagine uh, what it looked like to follow Christ in this context of, of Nazi Germany. In some ways, their lives are quite different than ours, and others not so much. But the profundity of this book is actually quite incredible, and I highly recommend it. If you're a visitor, you can just pick up a copy and take one with you today if you're a uh, if you're a member, you have to pay for it. Are we clear? If you're a member, you can get one, but you, you have to pay for it. Uh, in this little book, it starts with the verse from the Psalms. And we're going to read this out loud together, and we'll come back to it later on in the message. It's a fabulous verse. It's very fundamental to uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's thinking and what he writes in this book. So let's read this together. Let's read it like we mean it. You awake? Let's read it together. Psalm 133, verse 1. Let's read together. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. That's really, you understand, God's dream for the human race. When he created Adam and Eve, that is what God intended. That's why God created human beings. But sin, man, sin has messed this up in us and in the world. And so about 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes along. He lives. He dies. He comes back to life again from the dead. And when he does, he begins this little community. And he chose 12 individuals to be uh, in that community at the start. And these 12 grew to hundreds and then grew to thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and even millions or billions. And they eventually conquered the Roman Empire. And they spread the news about Jesus all over the then known world. And these people were extraordinary. They were incredible. Yes? Yeah, not so much, really. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at a few of these disciples to see what made them so powerful and so impactful. What, why was it so life-changing, this community? And as we do this, I want you to be asking, who was it in this community that made the community so special? Who were the disciples that were just so great that it rubbed off on everybody else? Who were the cream of the crop, the best and the brightest, the blue chippers? Okay, be asking yourself that question. So you can and see also if you can identify with any of these disciples. Now, we're going to start start the, the story in Luke chapter 6, a familiar passage, and there we read these words. One, on uh, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God, and when morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them. 
whom he also designated apostles. This is all very loaded information in this little paragraph. For example, the, the whole concept of 12, 12 disciples. An Israelite would have heard that and would have recognized what Jesus was doing right away. You understand when God started Israel, he started 12 tribes, right? 12 brothers, which created 12 tribes of Israel. But as you know, things broke down very early on in the, in the life of Israel, even among those brothers. Uh, but also in the nation itself, the nation eventually became divided, northern, southern kingdom. These uh, northern and southern kingdoms actually uh, fought one another, so you had tribes fighting tribes. Eventually the northern and the southern kingdom go off into exile. Nothing was working right. By the time of Jesus uh, coming to earth, there were actually what was talked about in Jesus' day, ten lost tribes. There were many, many, many Jews who could no longer identify just what tribe they were even from. And so the language it was used, well, there's, there's ten tribes that are lost. God's dream for community appeared to be badly, badly broken. So when Jesus tro- uh, chose 12 disciples, he was doing a very, a very audacious thing. Uh, no other rabbi did this or was doing this. Everybody knew, too, what Jesus was implying. He was saying God's dream of community, which was launched once upon a time with Israel, but got all messed up because of sin, it's beginning again in me. And with these 12, that's what Jesus is saying. And this is an amazingly bold statement. It's a symbolically loaded number for Israel. Jesus is saying, I'm remaking the community. I am reconstituting this community of God's special people. And so obviously, Jesus is going to pick nothing but the best and the brightest, right? Well, let's see. These are the 12 he appointed Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the names Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. And a lot, a lot of times in community, in fact, guys will do this all the time, you know, you're hanging out together, you give each other kind of a nickname. Well, Jesus did that with some of the disciples. He gave them a nickname. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who we know later betrayed him. And the first one mentioned is who? Simon. Simon's always the first, one's, uh, the first one mentioned. Jesus gave him the name Peter or the rock. Uh, Petros, Rocky would be its equivalent in our time. Uh, in all the lists of the disciples, and they're in most of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, also the book of Acts, Peter is always listed first. One writer says he was the first in faith, but he was also the first in failure. That's a, kind of a good way to think about Peter. So one day, Jesus uh, walks on water, and Peter says, man, that's cool. I'm going to do that too. And he steps out of the boat, and he's not standing there very long before he starts to sink. And Jesus reaches out and rescues him. Jesus one day is trying to teach that he is going to have to suffer. He's going to have to go to Jerusalem. He's going to have to lay down his life. He's going to die on a cross. And Peter says, Jesus, don't talk that way. Stop that. That's going to depress everybody. And Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes him. In the strongest of terms, he rebukes them. Jesus is uh, being taken away by the soldiers in the garden on the night that he's betrayed. And Peter grabs his sword, and he swings at one of the people there, Malchus, who is the servant of the high priest, and he lops off the guy's ear. Now, Peter was aiming for one of these, right? So this is not only violent, it's also incredibly inept. Uh, You know, he's not good with a sword is one of the things we take away from that. And Jesus has to say, stop it. That's, That's not what we're doing here, Peter. Jesus tells his disciples one time that they're all going to desert him when he is crucified. What does Peter do? Well, Peter brags, not me. They might betray you. 
They might desert you. Not me, Peter says, but we all know. Peter denies Jesus point blank. How many times? Three times. Even after the resurrection, the apostle Paul writes about this. He says that he had to confront Peter face to face face because Peter is doing things with these Judaizers, with these legalists that directly contradicts the gospel. And so Paul has to confront Peter and say, stop it, Peter. This is not the gospel we preach. This is not what Jesus died for. And so he has to challenge Peter and, and correct him. Peter's nickname should not have been Rocky. It should have been Rickety. But, you know, it was Rocky because Peter was messing up all the time. All the time. Anybody here ever mess up? Yeah. You're worse than the first service. I could, yeah, they were kind of just sitting there. Uh, anybody here ever put your foot in your mouth? Yeah. You ever wish, oh, man. I wish I hadn't said that. You, you imagine Peter wishes he hadn't said, I'll never, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm never going to run away. I'll be with you to the end. You see, Peter is the point that Peter is not the one who made this community great. Peter was first in failure, and some of us can painfully relate. We can painfully relate. Uh, the next couple of disciples that are also listed here, two brothers, James and John, Jesus gives them a nickname, Sons of thunder can also be translated sons of anger. And I I might argue probably should be. When we look at these two brothers, we see that they were not exactly strong in the area of impulse control, these two. They had strong impulses. They also had lots of anger. One day they were going through a Samaritan village. You know this story. The Samaritans didn't like Jews. Jews didn't like Samaritans. And as they go through the village, they're actually rejected. And so we read this in Luke chapter 9. It says, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them like they could even do that. You know, you think they could do that? Of course they couldn't do that. But that's James and John, you see, sons of anger, sons of thunder. One time they have another impulse in Matthew 20. They think, you know, it would be great to be the greatest. And uh, to be right up there with Jesus, Jesus, then us, James and John, you know. And so they get their mom to approach Jesus and have a conversation with Jesus about who's the greatest. So the mom goes to him and says, Jesus, when you come into your glory, can my son sit on your right and on your left? Can they be number two and number three, Jesus? And Jesus says to James and to John, sorry, boys, I had to disappoint your mom, but it's not going to work. This request that you got your mother to ask is not going to work. And I imagine, too, he also talked to him about enmeshment issues because they had plenty. Now, another time there was somebody who was not one of the disciples, and this person was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And this really angered John. John sees this, and and he says to the person, wait a minute, that's our turf, that's what we do, and he tells this guy to stop it. And then he goes and he reports it to Jesus, and Jesus says, John, not good, not good. You see, actually, if somebody is not against us, then they're, they're for us, so let people do good in my name. John, this is not about you, you see. And then, too, there was this competitive thing. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. If you've read much of the Gospels at all, you might have. There was this competitive thing going on between Peter and John uh, when the resurrection was announced by the women. The women come back from the tomb, and they tell the disciples who were all huddled together, hey, guess what? Jesus isn't there. And, And we're told that Peter and John take off on a foot race to the tomb. They're going to check this out for themselves, right? Well, John goes out of his way in his gospel to give us this little tidbit of information 
that we don't need. It's TMI, you see. And in John 20, verse 4, John says, I won. I beat Peter. That's what he says. And when Jesus told Peter another time that he was going to have to suffer, this is after the resurrection. Peter, you're going to suffer. You're going to die. You're going to have a difficult death and so on. Peter sees John walking by at that moment. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, what about him? You know, sort of like, hey, if I'm going to suffer, doesn't he have to suffer too? And Jesus tells him, mind your own business, Peter. Mind your own business. See, there's some kind of rivalry thing going on between these two guys. But as always, in community, in the power of the Holy Spirit, change is always possible. After the resurrection, we're told this in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are together and they're going into the temple to pray. Together, they're going into the temple now to pray. Something's different. Now they're doing life together. Now they're going in there to pray together and to talk to people, I'm sure, about Jesus. On the way in, a guy asks them for money. He's crippled. And they say, we don't have any money, but what we have you, we will give to you. What we have, we will give to you. And they pray for him together. And he is healed. And then they go on in the temple and they start talking about Jesus. And people see this guy that they've seen sitting there year after year, you know, uh, begging. And now he's leaping and he's walking around and they're going, wait a minute, that's the guy. He's usually over there. He's crippled and so on. And uh, these guys, the point is that that Peter and John, who have this kind of competitive thing going on, a lot of times it's been about their own glory. Can John and and I, you know, John says, can, can, can I and my brother James, can we sit next to you, Jesus, in your kingdom when it comes? But now, here's John working with Peter, and they're serving together. In fact, they even get arrested together in this situation, Acts 4 again. And it says, when they, the authority, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Uh, who chooses unschooled, ordinary men to be on the team? Well, Jesus does. They're not schooled. They're just ordinary. They're, these guys aren't trained in rhetoric. They're not powerful public figures of any kind. It's interesting, too. The Greek word that's translated ordinary here, you know what it is? Idiotai. Not making this up. Idiotai. It's the word that we get what from? Idiots. Yeah, these guys are a couple of idiots. That's what the Sanhedrin says about them, you see? So it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled idiot men, you know, that's what it's saying. That's what was their opinion of them. It says, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They're unschooled. They're ordinary. No credentials. Didn't matter. They had been with Jesus, and something extraordinary was happening because of that association with Jesus. And one of the last accounts that we have of these two guys together, we see the word of Jesus has been spreading. People have been coming to believe in Jesus, and this is what we read in Acts 8. It says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, remember Samaritans don't like Jews, Jews don't like Samaritans, they sent Peter and John of all places to Samaria. So you think John is going there now to call down fire from heaven to wipe out the Samaritans? No. Some transformation has been happening in John. That was what old John would have done. Now he's going to go and risk his life with Peter to tell these Samaritans about the love of Jesus. My point is just this. Nobody would have drafted these guys to put them on the team. I mean, you wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean, they're just ordinary, unschooled people. And yet here these guys are in the group on the team. Can you relate to John, anybody? Son of thunder, son of anger, 
Can you relate to Peter? You ever regret your temper? You ever have impulse control problems? Anybody want to admit that? I do. You know, three of us are honest. Um, uh, the, the next disciple, very interesting, Andrew. This is so interesting to me. Andrew is listed fourth among the disciples, but we know who he is because almost always, every time Andrew is introduced in the text, it reads like this. Another of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. That's how Andrew is usually introduced. Simon Peter was the one who was really well known. Andrew's just the tag along. He's just Simon Peter's Brother, And yet, ironically, Andrew knew Jesus first. Uh, the dynamics are so interesting here. We, we read in John 1 that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, uh, was one of the two who heard what John the Baptist had said and who had followed Jesus. So Andrew was following Jesus at this point. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought him, Peter, Simon, to Jesus. I mean, I kind of wonder sometimes, was there ever a, a time when, when Andrew was a little ambivalent about what he had done? Because Simon, you know, gets everything. He gets the cool nickname. Uh, he gets to preach. He gets all the recognition. Uh, and and all Simon gets called, or all, I mean, all Andrew gets called is, you know, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. And I just wonder if, if Andrew ever felt like Simon, 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 everybody loves Simon, you know, kind of a thing. I mean, that's who Andrew could have become. Bitter, jealous, resentful, angry, but he doesn't. It's amazing, he doesn't. Even though Andrew is just Simon's brother, every time we see him, he is bringing somebody to Jesus. He brought Simon to Jesus. He brought a kid one time that had two fish and five loaves of bread to Jesus. Jesus did some remarkable things with him. Another time, there was a group of Greeks, Gentiles, people who don't belong to the team, and a lot of people thought they should never belong to the team. What does Andrew do? Andrew brings them to Jesus and introduces them to Jesus. He's always doing this. It's just so cool. That could be a study in itself. Maybe we'll do that sometime. But it's really interesting to see how Andrew is described, but how Andrew keeps his focus on Jesus. It's about Jesus, not about me. Uh, the next guy that's mentioned is Philip. Philip, we know, uh, brought Nathaniel to Jesus, and he seems to be particularly close to Andrew. In fact, several times when uh, Philip encounters somebody, he would first bring them to Andrew, who would then take these people to Jesus. There's some kind of connection between these guys. Uh, Philip was from the town of Bethsaida, uh, which is also where Peter and Andrew and James and John were from. So five of the disciples were all homeboys from Bethsaida. And you wonder if the other disciples ever felt like they weren't part of the really inner circle of these five guys. I mean, we, we don't know that, but uh, you, you kind of wonder. The reason I wonder is the churches kind of work this way. What we do know is that when people have been in a church for a long while, sometimes you get these groups of people where they kind of feel, you know what, we're comfortable, we like each other, we don't want new people to bust up the friendships, the relationships, uh, the connection that we have with other people. And I'll tell you, I hope if you've been here for any length of time uh, and you have people that you know really well, I hope that you're still doing life, you know, with, with arms wide open that say to people, you're welcome, you're welcome here. I hope that you're saying to God, God, if there is somebody who feels kind of excluded or feels kind of left out, show me, God, I'll invite them in. They're, they're welcome in my group of friends here. I hope that's you. 
You know, Holly and I have been in the life groups most of our 30 years here at Deer Creek Church. I, I can't even imagine not being part of a life group, to tell you the truth. Uh, if you haven't been in one, man, I hope that you'll get in one. You have a card uh, in your bulletin, in fact, that gives you the necessary information for how to make that connection and how to get involved in a life group. If you're in a life group and you've been in one for a long time, I would challenge you to think about leading one. Start a new life group. Make the circle wider. Invite other people in. Uh, I, I hope you'll think about including others. You understand that here at Deer Creek Church, so much of the connecting piece, which is essential to following Jesus, you can't follow Jesus without being connected to other believers. So much of the, the connection piece happens in life groups. Actually, uh, we're, we're making a, 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 some changes around. We've given uh, Joseph some uh, additional responsibility in working with life groups, and, and uh, we're going to be pouring some effort, some energy, and some resources into better equipping life group leaders and starting new life groups. And, and uh, we really believe that it's vitally important for people to grow in Jesus and, and to do that in the context of small groups, what we call life groups. And uh, if you want to know how to do that, take that card out. gives you the information that you need uh, there to, to get connected or uh, talk to Joseph. Joseph wants you to raise your hand so I know who you are. You might not know Joseph. There's Joseph, yeah. Joseph will be in the connect table at the end of the lobby. Commercial, okay. You all good? You all good? Okay. Let's keep moving. Let's talk about the next one. Thomas. What's his nickname? Doubting Thomas. Jesus didn't give him that name, by the way, but that's what we've referred to him down through the years, Doubting Thomas. That's this very Thomas. Because after Jesus was resurrected, Thomas is the guy who says this in John 20. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, because you see others have been telling Thomas, he's risen. We've seen him. We've talked to him. Thomas hadn't seen him. And so Thomas says, well, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Uh, the interesting thing about Thomas, we run into him a few times described this way in John 11, John 20, John 21. Thomas is described this way. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus. It's so interesting. Why this description, Didymus? Well, Didymus was the Greek word for twin. So almost certainly Thomas is a twin. Now in our day, we think twins are really cool, especially if somebody else is having twins, Right? <laughs> Uh, but back in the ancient world, twins were not cool. This was not good news. In the ancient world, childbirth was very dangerous. Oftentimes, a child or the mother could lose their life in the process of childbirth. Finding out that you've got multiple uh, births going to happen even raised the danger to, you know, just exponentially. Now it's really going to be a dangerous birth. In the ancient twi uh, world, twins generally were a bad sign. Some even thought of them as a bad omen. Plus, in the ancient world, you understand the law of primogeniture was in effect. That's the law that says that the firstborn child, firstborn male, gets the birthright. The firstborn male is given all of the family estate and all of the family property and all of the family wealth. The firstborn child is the child that matters most. That's the law of primogeniture. And so if you have twins and they're both boys, the second son is going to make it kind of hard to keep track of which is the first. A twin could complicate things is the point. A twin might threaten the life of that firstborn. They could both die. Or, or both 
the, the children and the mother could die. Uh, 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 the idea of having twins was just a frightening idea. In the Old Testament, you might know this, there are only two sets of twins mentioned. One is Jacob and Esau, and the other is Perez and Zerah. Let me ask you, how well do you think these twins got along? They didn't. Not at all. Things went very badly between these twins. In the ancient world, the second born of a set of twin boys was usually unwanted. They would often be left to die of exposure just to keep things clear. Uh, And if not that, the firstborn would get a cool name, the family name, all the property and so on that the family owned. The secondborn would oftentimes just be called twin. Not even bothered to give them a name. Just, Just call them twin. So guess what? Thomas, the name Thomas, it's the Greek word translating the Aramaic word trauma. Thomas means twin. So Thomas, you know, the twin, uh, if you read uh, this passage carefully, uh, it's telling us this, that, that, that Thomas is, you know, totally an afterthought. His name Thomas is twin. And in case you didn't get that, which is sometimes called Didymus, which means twin, So Thomas' name is Twin Twin. That's what they were saying. Thomas' name is like Xerox. He's an unnecessary copy. Or he's like if if you have twin boys, Pete and Repeat, or girls, Kate and Duplicate. (laughs) Want me to keep going? No, No, it's terrible. I know. And, And here's the thing. If you look at the life of Thomas, it seems that this irrelevance that he seems, this this irrelevant place that he occupies in the family uh, seems to mess with Thomas. You know, there's this duality, if you will, to to Thomas, almost a a double nature to him. He's a disciple, but he's also a doubter. He's a believer, but he's also a skeptic. He's doubting Thomas. One time Jesus was going to go to Bethany in Judea to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he and the disciples had already been doing ministry down in this area, and they had left the area and gone back north because things had gotten so dangerous for them there. And so they've already left, right? And now Jesus is saying, we're going to go back down there because I need to do some ministry with Lazarus and with the family there. And Thomas hears that Jesus wants to go back to Bethany. And in John 11, it says, Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, twin twin, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas was a real upper kind of guy. I mean, that's the kind of personality he had. Just cheery, always an upper, real motivator. Yeah, let's, let's go with Jesus to Bethany and let's die with him. You know, that's what he's saying here. And, and yet, here's the point that I really want to make. You're probably wondering, why is he saying all this? Here's the point. Thomas is in the community. Jesus makes room for Thomas in the 12. It's remarkable, really. I'm just curious, does, does, anybody, does anybody here ever doubt, you know? All human beings doubt. If you're a human being, you can't live without doubt. You, you ever wonder, do, do my prayers really matter? Is God actually hearing me? You ever feel negative or conflicted or, or confused about life, about faith? Or thing? You ever wonder if you matter to God? Welcome to Jesus' community. You see, there's re- room for you, just, just like there's room for Thomas. In this community. Bonhoeffer writes this in the book Life Together. He says, the exclusion of the weak and the insignificant. And you know, really, in all of our human associations, we would like to only be in groups that exclude the weak and the insignificant. We only want important people here with me who's important, you see. 
Bonhoeffer says the exclusion of the weak and the insignificant, the seemingly useless people from a Christian community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. In the poor brother, Christ is knocking at the door, he says. You see, God has a dream for community, friends, and it is very different than the other uh, human communities around us. It's not about drafting blue chippers. That's not God's community. In God's community, everybody is welcome. Nobody is perfect. Change is possible. Why? Because Jesus is in that community. Jesus makes the community. If I think that I don't want to be part of a community where the weak and the insignificant are there, you know, seemingly useless people, well, then, friends, as Bonhoeffer suggests, really what I'm doing is I'm shutting Jesus out of that community. And it's not Christian community anymore. And, uh, and really, here's the truth. If we know ourselves well, if we know the truth, we, we understand that I'm really the weak. I'm really the insignificant one. I'm the one that needs the work of Jesus to be done in my heart the most, the greatest. And so who am I to think that I'm somebody super special, you're not, I am, and I need people just like me in my community but not like you. You see, you see how broken that is, how tragic that kind of thinking is. Christian community is not about being around people who make me feel good about myself, people who are useful to me, people who advance my career, people who make me look good, only people I enjoy. That's not Christian community. Being in Christian community is not about networking. Being in Christian community can be hard. It can often be very difficult. It can often be anything but glamorous. Think about what Jesus puts up with just to have you in his community. Think about it. And yet amazingly, Christian community is what God uses to announce the gospel to the world. Jesus even said one time, you know, by the love that you have for one another, the world will know that you're my disciples. It's amazing that he would use us to be the ones who demonstrate and announce the truth about who Jesus is because we are so broken. We can be so bad at this. You know, in Christian community, you get people like Simon the Zealot. Uh, He's the next disciple mentioned. The Zealots were a group of people who were very zealous for the laws of Israel. They wanted the, the, the ways of Israel to uh, dominate, and they eventually became a political party dedicated to the overthrow of Rome. They hated the Roman occupiers, especially Roman soldiers. The only guy the zealots hated more than a Roman soldier was a tax collector, and that's because tax collectors were Israelites who colluded with the Romans to take money away from Israelites and make themselves rich. And so Simon the Zealot, he becomes... One of these people in the community. Jesus brings him into the community. And then Simon the Zealot watches while Jesus gets approached by a Roman centurion, a commander of a hundred over Roman soldiers. And this Roman centurion comes and asks Jesus for help. And Jesus says, okay, I'll help you. (laughs) And then he says to the centurion, Jesus says to the centurion, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith as yours. And Simon the Zealot must be just going, Jesus, you're killing me here. I mean, come on. This is the guy we want to get rid of, and here you are helping him. Here you are praising him. What are you doing, Jesus? Well, here's what Jesus is doing. The very next disciple mentioned is Matthew the tax collector. You think there's a reason why in the list those two names are together? I think probably Jesus said, hey, Matthew, Simon, you guys are rooming together. 
You're bunking up. When, as we travel, you're going to be room in the island. I'm sure that had to drive them crazy. Why did Jesus do that? Why did he put these two, a zealot and a tax collector, together? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because he loved them. And they needed to grow. They needed to change. And this is how we change. By the people that God puts into our lives. Christian community is not the place you go to get away from difficult people. We don't want our life groups to be little enclaves of people just like you. And, and you know, nobody in there making any difficulty for anybody. You get in a life group, it's not going to be a place where everybody makes you feel good and agrees with you all the time. It's going to be a place where there's somebody there who just bothers the daylights out of you, right? That's part of how God grows people. I love this about Jesus' community. Simon the Zealot bunks with Matthew the tax collector. Christian community is not uh, dreamy, wishful, um, fanciful kinds of community. Jesus calls us to actually love and actually forgive and actually do life with real people. Bonhoeffer says this. He says, innumerable times a whole Christian community is broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream or some idealized version of what Christian community is. He says, the serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. In other words, Christian community ought to be just great people making me feel better, people just like me, people that I like to be around. That's what Christian community should be. But Bonhoeffer goes on, he says, but, but God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as, God's desire, as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others. We've got to know that people are going to let us down all the time. Uh, he says, we also, as, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great delusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. In Christian community, you learn about the darkness of your own heart. Why do you think this way about this person? Why do you recoil the way you do from this person? There's some darkness in your heart that needs work, you see. And it says, he who loves his dream of a community more than actual Christian community becomes a destroyer of the latter, a destroyer of Christian community. <laughs> Jesus' community is where Simon the Zealot is always going to find Matthew the tax collector. It's always going to be like that. Now, there are, others, disciple, there are other disciples listed. Uh, there's James the Less, great nickname. Not sure why he got that name. James the Less. Thaddeus, you can check this out yourself in John chapter 14. The, Thaddeus is the asker of incredibly stupid questions. That's what he does. He asks an incredibly self-centered, stupid question of Jesus. That's all we know about him. Bartholomew is mentioned. Judas Iscariot, a liar, a thief, a betrayer. But what's amazing about Judas Iscariot is that there was even room in Jesus' community for him. Jesus even called him friend. And here's the point. Guaranteed. None of these guys are what made the community great. None of them. You go through the whole list. You think, what a weird selection of people that make up this community. Well, friends, i got news for you. The community of Jesus is just as weird today as it was back then. We're just this hodgepodge. And yet the community is great. Why? It's not a trick question. Yeah, why? 
Yeah, Jesus, yeah. It's so obvious. What makes Christian community Christian isn't the presence of Christians. It's the presence of Jesus. I am a better man when I realize that Jesus is present in my life. Heck, I'm a better man when, uh, when just you are present. Uh, let me illustrate. I went to REI one time. I purchased a bunch of protein bars that were on sale. And the lady who checked me out was somebody who goes to church here or went to church at Deer Creek at the time. And as she was checking me out, for some reason I'm noticing the bars are not really scanning. You know, it's not going up. The cash register is not going to ching, you know, getting more and more and so on and so forth. When she was all done, she rang me up for $6. I'm thinking, yeah, that can't be right. It should be more like, you know, 20 or something like that. And the thought flashed through my head, what a deal. Take the bars and run. This is great. But I'm also thinking, well, the cashier goes to Deer Creek Church. And, uh, you know, I need to tell her something's not right, which is what I did. Um that I hadn't been charged appropriately, so I got to pay her more like $20. Now, here's the question. Now, do you think I'd have done that if the cashier hadn't been someone who was attending Deer Creek Church? You're not too sure, are you? <laughs> and neither am I. Uh, you'd like to think I would. I'd like to think I would. Here's the point. Just her presence made me better. You see, imagine if I lived my life more aware of the presence of Jesus who is with me all the time. You see, that's what Christian community helps us to remember. I mean, we gather here at this ungodly time when the Broncos are playing. Why do we do this? (laughs) You know what? There's no room in Christian community for that. Anyway. You know, we do this simply because we know how badly we need to remember together, be reminded together. He is with us. He is always with us, don't you see? That's the point of this gathering, to remember this. You know, in Christian community, we grow in our awareness of Jesus' presence. In Christian community, Jesus is always available to us. He said, wherever two or three are gathered together, where is he? He's right there in the midst of them. He's in the midst of us. Bonhoeffer put it like this. Jesus Christ stands between the lover and the others he loves. Because Jesus stands between me and others, I dare not desire direct fellowship with him. Here's here's the picture. So so here's you and here's me. And you know, (laughs) I'm really bright. And um, I know what you need. I know, I can tell you what you need. I can see it so, I can't believe you can't see it. I can see what you need. And I'm going to come over here, I'm going to put my arm around you, I'm going to say... Idioti, Um, what you need is, and I've got an agenda for you, you see? And, uh, but here's the deal. In Christian community, I don't get to do that. Jesus stands right here between you and me. And, And so my working in you, my involvement with you has to go and pass through Jesus. And don't you see how important uh, this is? Bonhoeffer goes on. He said, this means that I must release the other person from every attempt of mine to regulate, to coerce, and to dominate him. It's not about what I think you need. It's about what Jesus is up to in you, in me, you see. You see, I relate to you in Christian community. It's, It's not me relating to you. It's me and Jesus. Jesus is always to be between me and you. That's Christian community. 
where no relational interaction omits the presence of Jesus. So I have to drop my agenda, drop my will, drop my plans, my wonderful plans for your life. And when I do that, here's the beauty of this. Psalm 133 becomes real. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. The unity is in Jesus. And guys, that's what every one of us here is called to be a part of. That is God's dream for us in community. And man, you look at our world right now. You look at the racial violence, the domestic violence. You look at the uh, world, the violence that's happening, religious violence all around the world. The church is the people. The church is the community that Jesus started with just ordinary people, people exactly like you, exactly like me, to show the world that change is possible, to show the world what love looks like. That's what we get to do in, in our life groups, in our interactions with people. And I would just beg of you, I I would hope that you would be a part of community here at Deer Creek Church. Yes, gather with us on Sunday morning, essential for a disciple's growth, but connection is essential as well. And I'm just calling everybody who is a follower of Jesus, if you're not in a life group, get in one. Why? You need it. And there are others around here who need you. Yes, it won't be easy. It might be difficult. It might be really hard. That's all right. It's not about being easy. It's not about some fantasy of what Christian fellowship is supposed to look like. It's just about you and Jesus loving real people and letting them love you. Well, that's it. Amen? (laughs) Is that an amen to the sermon or is that an amen that I'm quitting? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of community, for your invention of community, for what can happen in human lives when there's this simple act of one person caring for another, one person noticing another, one person encouraging another, correcting another, cheering another on, welcoming another being generous to another, discipling another. God, what a great thing it is to be able to celebrate and serve and love and give to each other. And I pray right now, Father, for everybody who is thinking about taking a step into community. God, help them to go there. I pray for our communities, for all of our groups, uh, where there are strains and where there are difficulties and where there is stuff that needs to get reconciled. God, make reconciliation happen in us. Give wisdom and discernment. Always, God, in all of our interactions, even right now today, may Jesus be present. And we pray this together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.